Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is The Secret Library, a podcast about writing and publishing books. I'm Caroline Donahue, a life coach who works with writers, and I'm here to tell you this is your year. It's time to stop waiting and start writing. This week's episode is brought to you by The Story is a State of Mind School. Early registration is now open for The Story Intensive, an amazing course happening this fall, all about craft and brilliant writing, offered by the one and only Sarah Selecki, who you all know as a repeat guest on the show. Find out how you can sign up for the course and request me as your TA at carolinedonahue.com story. There will also be some group coaching calls for those who sign up through me and other fun stuff going on over there. So again, the link to check that out is carolinedonahue.com story. Okay, now on with the show. Welcome to episode 56. My guest today is Dori Shafrir, the author of the novel Startup. And she is also a senior culture writer at BuzzFeed News and has written for New York Magazine, Slate, The All, Rolling Stone, Wired, and other publications. A former resident of Brooklyn, she now lives in Los Angeles with her husband, Matt Mira, who is a comedy writer and podcaster, and they also live with their dog, Bo. So I had to have Dory on because Startup is just so good and so funny and talk about what it's like to write a novel when you've been a journalist and writing about pop culture and to write about something that is so timely and of the moment that is coming out at a moment when people are like, oh my God, yes, this book. So I know you're going to get a lot out of Dory because there is such a lag between when you come up with an idea for a book and when it comes out and how delicate it is to have a book that feels timely and how often that actually does manage to happen and what it's like to write about culture and all of that fun stuff, as well as the kind of startup culture and how technology is influencing literature. So I had a lot of fun talking to Dory, and I know you'll have a lot of fun listening as well. Enjoy. Hey, Dory, thanks so much for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Of course. I am so freshly connected to your book uh, because I just put the thing down. It's a fast read. I was thinking actually today that it's like the smart person's summer read. Oh, thank I could you. see people just like chewing away at this and being like, ooh, it's like, it makes you think, but it's also really fast paced. Like it was really easy yeah. to just plow through this book. What I wanted to talk about was the fact that the way the book is structured is from four different characters point of view. Um, even though it's in the third person, is it more? It's, it's three. No, it's three different characters. It feels like four to me. Oh. <laughs> I guess I was, three. I kind of like Dan felt so fleshed out to me that I kind of included Thank Dan you. in that. But I guess that's true. You never get Dan's side really. Yeah. But, um, but that there's, you know, there's multiple points of view, even though it's yes. told in the third person. And the interesting thing to me is that even though it's such a fast paced book and there's a lot of things happening with plot, when I thought about it further, I was like, this is fundamentally a character driven book because at least to me, because they're all (laughs) struggling with these dilemmas in their lives. And what choice am I going to make based on what I know? So I was, 
wanting to talk to you about like, how did you develop these characters? Well, first of all, I'm glad you liked the book. I did. I did. I liked <laughs> it a lot. And a smart person summer read is like kind of exactly what I was going for. So I'm Excellent. glad that you thought that. So yeah, so the characters, Mac and Katya. So I guess I should back up a little bit and kind of yeah, give let's tell a- people about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so it takes place in the New York tech slash startup world. And um, there it's it's the story of a 28 year old guy who started a company that is a mindfulness app. And as the story begins, he has to raise a bunch of money to keep his startup going. He's also been in this sort of casual hooking up kind of relationship with um, a woman who works for him. So we meet him kind of in that state. Um, And then there's another character named Katya, who is 24. And she is a journalist for um, like a tech blog. And she, at the beginning of the book, she learns that she has to come up with um, like a big story in order to really keep her job. So that's kind of the challenge that she's faced with at the beginning of the book. And then the third character is a 36-year-old woman named Sabrina, who works for Mac. She actually works for the woman that Mac is having the casual relationship with. The dalliance. The dalliance, yes, exactly. Um, And she is married to Katya's boss. She also is just newly back in the workforce after five years staying home with her children. So she's like a real, like, fish-out-of-water character. And then... A scandal unfurls, I guess, and Katya uncovers it, and events kind of fall out from there, I guess is the best way to describe what happens. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, it's sort of like there's this build, and you kind of see it. It's like watching a train wreck from far away in slow motion. (laughs) You're just like, oh, no. I mean, you know that, like, obviously not everything is going to go entirely according to plan for anyone involved, um, but it's sort of like, how do they get there? Um, so Mac and Katya were very early creations. I always knew that kind of very broad strokes of that plot were were going to be in place, and I was thinking about, like, who the best characters to, to tell that story would be. Katya is actually probably the character who changed the least, like from the very beginning to what the book actually became. Um, Mac in earlier drafts was a little bit older, actually. He was like in his early 30s. And then I decided that he needed to be like a little bit more naive. And so I made him younger. Um, And then Sabrina was kind of a later creation. um, And she actually ended up being the combination of two different characters. In an in initial draft, there was a character named Abby who is no longer in the book. And she worked for Mac. She she basically had Sabrina's job. Then her personal life was like very different. And then I had Sabrina in the book, but she was a stay-at-home mom. So basically her personal life was kind of the same, but her professional life was totally different. And then um, I realized that Abby and Sabrina were like kind of the same person. Um, and so I was like, oh, actually, Sabrina works for Mac. Like that makes more sense. So how did because I think the thing that I like, well, I really like that Katya, who is the children of immigrants and is this journalist. So she's got this kind of scrappy 
thing to prove, but she's kind of an outsider. Like she doesn't get all the cultural references and she feels self-conscious when she doesn't get like a song reference somebody's mentioning. And then Sabrina feels like an outsider because she's over 30, which was, you know, hilarious to me because I was older than everybody except for that one investor guy. Oh, yeah. that, I was like, oh, my God, he's over 40. I was like, oh, my God, there's one character in this whole book who's older than me, which is pretty <laughs> funny. But they're all like feeling like outsiders yeah. looking in versus Mac is sort of the ultimate insider to the point where his office is inside this glass fishbowl where everybody's kind of watching him from the outside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, how did you kind of make them real people? Because they really do feel like real people even though mac is i don't know how else to put it kind of a dum-dum in his in his life choices yeah you still kind of empathize with him even though it's a really easy character not to empathize with right yeah so i mean that was actually one of the biggest challenges with mac and something that i spent a lot of time on um was making him a character that you do end up empathizing with at points even if it's like kind of against your will almost <laughs> um, like I wanted him to feel complex and three-dimensional, even though it would have been super easy for him to be one dimensional and almost like a caricature. And I think there were drafts where he felt a little bit more like a caricature. And then I really had to think about how I could write him. So he really did feel like a real person Um, And one of those things was making him a little bit more empathetic. That was one thing. I don't know. How did I make them feel real? Uh, Or I'm just curious about your process. Like, did you sit down and free write about them? Did you have imaginary conversations with them? Like, as a writer, you know, what was, how did you build a relationship to them? So I... I didn't really free write about them. I know that a lot of authors do do that. Like they build up like dossiers about their characters and I didn't do that. But I, what I did do was I ended up writing a lot of chapters that didn't make it into the book. And I think that, that those chapters were really just me getting to know my characters. So I, in a way I was free writing, but I was kind of like putting them in situations and sort of seeing how they, handled them almost like to me they felt like real people even though they are made up people and you know I've been a journalist for over a decade I like I'm used to writing about people and trying to make them like come alive on the page so in a way I think I just kind of treated my fictional characters like I would have treated someone I was writing about journalistically it was just that I was like reporting on them, but I was make I was I was also making up who they were. Yeah, how was that to transition? Because you have been a tech journalist, so you have a lot of context. I mean, I think about that a lot in weird jobs that I've had. That sometimes I've been like, hmm, if you change the situation a little bit, it could get really interesting. Yeah. But how was it to go from like, here's these set of facts that I have to report, and I'm, of course, going to take an angle and have a perspective, to this whole page is blank, and I get to put whatever I want on it. How did that feel? I mean, it was like simultaneously very liberating and very overwhelming. Like, it was really cool to not feel like I was constrained by, you know, what had actually happened, or like what people had actually said, or what people actually looked like, like, 
you know, I could, I could change any of that stuff, but at some point you're, you really are in charge of those characters and their stories. And, you know, you want to find their story that feels believable, but also has tension and is a narrative. And that part kind of after the initial like euphoria of being like, I can make up whatever I want after that kind of like wore off. And I was like, Oh, but I actually have to like write a story. I definitely had a few weeks or maybe even a few months where I was like really struggling with that and felt like, well, I know, I know kind of where they start and where they end up, but how do I write what happens in the middle? And that was really hard. And I realized like when you, when, you know, when you're a journalist, like, you know the story, like you have to uncover the story, but you you know that the story exists and that you are not a part of the story and you're not influencing the story. And all of a sudden it was like, oh, <laughs> like I am making up this story. Um, and actually, as I was writing, someone along the way at some point, I'd written quite a bit and someone said to me, you are telling a lot of the story, like your characters are are remembering what happened. You're not putting us in the action. And I was like, oh, because that's how I'm used to writing as a journalist. Right. Because they're so, telling you something after it happens and you're yes. like, so-and-so recalls, blah, blah, blah. Exactly. Exactly. That was a big revelation for me. It sounds so obvious, but really like a, I felt like a switch flipped after, after like I got that note and I had to put so much more of the book into the, into like showing the characters actually experiencing what was going on, not just like remembering what had happened yeah it's because it does it feels very present and you're with them right as everything's happening it's not like the four of them are like once I remember that summer when all this shit went down you know they're really experiencing it at the time that was hard for me to do there were these things that I just picked up as a journalist that I didn't even realize I had picked up until I started actually writing the book so what was the initial impulse to write a novel having been a journalist? Were you, did you always want to do that? And, or did it just come out of somewhere like, I think it's time. I want to write a novel. <laughs> I mean, I definitely was not a person that always like thought I had a novel in me. That was not a thing that was ever in my mind. Like I, I, I have not spent my whole career like wishing I was actually a novelist. And in fact, like, I thought that if I wrote a book, it would be nonfiction, like, maybe a book of essays, or like something based on my reporting, or, you know, but when I started working on the book, I was working, I was working at BuzzFeed, and I was working as an editor, and like a manager, I was managing a bunch of people, and I wasn't really doing any writing of my own. And I was like, I need my own project. I'm just going to write every day for a month and like see what happens. And I did that. That was in January of 2015. It was kind of a New Year's resolution. And I don't know. It's like I just sort of start. I basically just started free writing and it was fiction. And I was writing this character who is now a very minor character in the book. Um, this guy, Nile. 
but at the time he was like, he was one of the main characters. Um, so he was kind of my way in, but then he ended up not really being in the book at all. <laughs> yeah. He's but, like a side argument with Katya's boyfriend. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I'm impressed you actually remembered who he was. Like I've mentioned. Oh, him a I know exactly who he is. Yeah. And like, people have been like, who was that? Um, yeah. Like I have like 30 or 40,000 words written of like his story. Amazing. That I was just like, okay. Gotta well, get you'll, rid be, of- you'll be ready if somebody buys the rights. You'll be like, I got all kinds of episodes for yeah, you exactly. that you don't even know about the side story <laughs> that we could go into on this character. Totally. I mean, so, there were a couple of scenes that I had written of his that ended up making it into Max's story. Mm. But for the most part, his story is just is not in there at all. Yeah, he seems much more passive than Mac. Yeah. Totally. And that was actually the problem with his, with his story. He was super passive and he was also like really depressed and it just wasn't, it was like, now he's depressed in his apartment. Now he's depressed like on the subway. Now he's depressed at a bar. (laughs) Now he's smoking some weed and he's depressed. Yes, exactly. And so eventually I was just like, okay, he's not that interesting. And like his story doesn't really fit in with the rest of what I'm trying to say. So he started coming out. So you're writing every day. So Nile comes out. And then how did the other ones show up? Did they just sort of appear in his narrative and then they were more interesting or? No, I mean, Nile didn't come out till much, much later. Oh, okay. Nile didn't come out till like a year in. Wow. Yeah, he was in there for a long time. Like, I wrote a whole draft of the book with him in it. Wow. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like I I rewrote the first 100 pages like 20 times. Like, I felt like wow. I couldn't get them totally right and with different character combinations and kind of different emphases and the way that the plot unfolds was, was like, slightly different in every version. Um and I really, like, I was really having trouble. I felt like nailing the first hundred pages. And at some point I'd written a full draft, but then I was like, this draft isn't good and it's not good because I don't have the first hundred pages down. And so that all, I don't know, that all kind of happened that way. Yeah. I mean, I can, I can totally see how this would happen, especially when you have a combination of character POV that you could be like, what if we get inside this one's head or what if we're with this one? Like at one point, I think I was, I think I had five or six, like I was playing around with having like five or six perspectives and my agent was like, this is too many. (laughs) Like you're gonna, like you're gonna lose people and you're not going to be able to develop each character's arc very well. Like you're going to spend so much time on setup that it's going to slow down the story. And I was like, you are correct. (laughs) so So you had an like at what point did you end up with an agent and did you have that because it sounds like you were still playing with elements of it so I already had an agent because she had reached out to me a few years prior she had seen some stuff I had written and we got lunch this is when I was still living in New York and I think she you know like me she always thought I would write 
a nonfiction book and she represents mostly nonfiction writers. Um, she doesn't represent a lot of novelists at the time. It made total sense that she would be my agent. And then when I started working on this, I remember I emailed her, like I was probably 50 or 60 pages in and I was like, I've been working on something. And she was like, great, that's amazing. And I was like, it's fiction. And she was like, oh, like, she wasn't like, oh, God, like, she was definitely excited, but I think surprised. Right. And then she read it. And, and at that point, I was really like, can you just read this and tell me if it's total trash? Because if you think it is like, that's fine. I'm glad I wrote it. Like, this was a great exercise, but I will now not devote any more time to this. Right. Um, but she read it and she was like, I really like this. Like, you should keep going. And I was like, okay. So she was like pretty involved from an early point. So I probably showed it to her initially, like beginning of February, 2015. And then I worked on it for a few more months and then... I actually did a full draft and she was like, it's not there. I was like, okay. And then, um, I said, could we try selling a partial? Mm. And she was like, not super psyched about that idea. Um, but I finally, I wore her down (laughs) and she said, okay, I will try to sell a partial. I'll do a limited submission of like, five or six editors. I forget exactly how many we ended up sending it to. So we sent them the first hundred pages and outlined for the rest of the book. Now those first hundred pages included Nalay. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it was obviously very different from what ended up being the book, but fortunately little Brown liked it enough that they made an offer. That's amazing to hear about that because you almost never hear about that happening for fiction. It's like you can sell a book proposal if you're writing nonfiction with an outline and like sample chapters, but that never happens for fiction. You just have to write the whole book and take your chances and that's how it goes. You know, look, I don't want to pretend that this is like normal because I know it's not like, you know, I know I've talked to a lot of other novelists and, and agents and editors and most of them are like, yeah, that's not normally how first novels go. But I think because I was like a relatively well-known entity in media already, and they felt like I had a platform that would be helpful in selling the book. And also the fact that I was writing a novel that was nonetheless like not totally dissimilar from what I had done as a journalist it made people more willing to take a chance on the partial. Now that being said, like most of the other editors we showed it to were like, we like this, but come back when you have a full manuscript. Mm. So it it wasn't like everyone was like, Oh my God, yes, I want this right now. And to be honest, I think I would have been totally thrilled with that response from everyone. Like, I think at that point I was really just like, is this good? Will people want to buy it? Right. Right. So the fact that we got we got two offers was a total bonus, but not what I was expecting. That's amazing. The other thing too is that I was curious about the process of editing the book because there are there are timely books and then there are books like this, which timely is a window of it could be months, you know, in terms yeah. of apps and how they change and what you're using and like Snapchat and all of this kind of stuff. Totally. 
how did you have to swap apps at any point as you were editing the book between drafts? Because I'm like, okay, so you're writing this in 2015. It's now 2017. You've got there's a year conservatively between when you lock it and when it goes to print, you know, and it comes out. Yeah. So how did you pull that off? Because uh, I'm reading this like it feels like she wrote this two weeks ago. And I know that's impossible. Right. So the time frame was actually a little bit more compressed. The first draft was due on June 1st of last year. So June 1st, 2016. And then it was in edits for, you know, a month or two. But the manuscript itself wasn't locked until I think October. Okay. And then we had galleys in November, but the galleys were the first pass pages and the, the, the locked pages were, were later because there were changes to the galley. Sorry. I'm just like thinking out loud about the timeline. Yeah. So there were definitely things that I could change as late as October. Um, and in fact, there was like one other very small change that I ended up making like very late, like, like February or like February, I think January, February. And they were like, Oh, like you caught this like a week before this was going to go to the printer or something like that. But it was like a very small change. It wasn't like, you know, things had to be like totally redone, but to answer your question. Yes. I, the, the thing that I, um, the sort of the biggest casualty of timeliness was there was a reference to vine at one point um like katya was looking at a bunch of vines or something and as i was working on the book vine died (laughs) um and i mean i guess it like sort of still exists but like no one uses it and yeah it certainly isn't like the cultural phenomenon that it was at one point for that particular instance i changed the reference to snapchat right I don't know. I feel like there were a couple things like that where either something had become obsolete or I had asked, like I had a couple of my coworkers at Buzzfeed read the manuscript and they gave me notes and they were both, they're both like in their twenties. And I really like, I needed, you know how some, like some people have sensitivity readers. I had like 20 something readers (laughs) sure that my book felt really true to kind of what it was like to be a 20 something. I remember one, like one edit, one of them had was, Oh, she wouldn't have posted this on Instagram. She would have, she would have like put it on Snapchat. And I was like, good note. (laughs) (laughs) But then like at some point you kind of just have to like shut it down. Yeah. You know, I could have just like driven myself insane with tiny, like, like minute details but I'm glad that you think it feels super timely. <laughs> yeah, but then again, I mean, I admitted that I'm older than any of the characters except for that one investor. So I may not yeah. be the one to be assessing the timeliness. But it does, I mean, having, you know, one-tenth the exposure to the tech world that you do, I it, it felt very real to me. Good. So one thing uh, I was lucky enough to hear you at Skylight, which is where we met, and I remember... Uh, we talked about the fact that writing this book has changed your feelings about what you're doing as a journalist. So I'm wondering if you can say more about that. You know, I I had been, I'd written about tech before and written about startups before and like was always fascinated by tech culture, but did always kind of approach it more from a cultural perspective, like never really thought that it would be a beat for me per se. But then after writing this book and then 
I did I did a few freelance stories around the time that the book came out and like everyone wanted me to write about like gender and startups and I did some reporting and I was like oh like I don't know it just felt like that was where I should be right now so I I moved over to the tech team and I'm now covering um, LA tech and startups. So how is it covering LA because the book is so New York focused and you did live in New York. So how are are you seeing the LA tech scene compared to the New York tech scene? Well, I like literally just started. I mean, when we're having this conversation, I started six days ago and three (laughs) of those days were spent in San Francisco with my new team. So I I really like- First thoughts, I think it would be early, early days. But do you see a difference even just as a tech aware person in LA who used to be in New York? Do you see huge differences in that culture or is it- fairly similar. Um, Well, I mean, I do think that like having your office on the beach is kind of like it is going to affect, it's going to have an impact on your culture. Like it just is like, I think that the way that tech culture has kind of blossomed in Venice and Santa Monica, it's a very like West side influenced kind of culture and there's a lot of emphasis on like wellness and all of that kind of stuff that I think you see you definitely see some of in New York for sure but it feels even more pronounced here yeah I think California is very much that way I mean I remember I mean I lived in San Francisco before LA and that was it's it's its own world up there this kind of totally wellness heads thinking, mentality, yeah. meditation, like yeah. a lot of it. I mean, I have not been in the New York tech scene, but it still made me laugh a lot of it because it feels very true, I think, in California in general. Yeah, I think, yeah. I mean, I think it's definitely like a California inflected um, scene. And also, I think there's more of a celebrity element also. You know, like you have a company out here called whale rock that like runs all of kim kardashian like all the kardashian family apps and you know like there's just like those types of companies here that i don't think are as prevalent in new york i mean i could be wrong about that but but there definitely seems to be a cottage industry of apps and companies that take advantage of the fact that la has so much celebrity culture there's such a close, I mean, it feels like there must be a really close thing that happened because you have, I think this was mentioned at the signing as well, but it just cracked me up. The idea that there was like, you know, stroll up the Uber for strollers is hysterical. And just, it almost feels like this whole thing, like did the onion take over the news? Because sometimes you're like, this is too good to not be real. But in, in, in right. like, was there a really close crossover I think you mentioned like were there some that you thought of to use in the book and then somebody actually invented them yeah well there have been a couple that have been like pretty close like even max app there's not something that's exactly that but I just was reading about um, a meditation app that offers like over a thousand different meditations like based on your mood and it's really focused on like improving your mood and all this stuff and I was like oh that sounds kind of familiar I could Um, could relate to that concept (laughs) yeah exactly and then like the there's a company that I kind of mentioned in passing that's like an interior decorating oh yeah the I decorate and there Yeah. yeah and there there is an app that's it's again it's not exactly the same but 
a lot of the overall concept is like kind of similar. So that was like a funny thing to sort of see that happen. Yeah, it's this interesting parallel between satire, which is sort of happening closer to the present moment versus Mm -hmm. like science fiction where you're kind of predicting the future and then you start to see those things come up. Because yours definitely feels like almost like a slightly parallel now versus like something that's happening 20 years from now. And then we show up and we're like, oh my God, look, there's Stroll up. It's real. Totally. Totally. Because this all happens so much more quickly. Like, how do you see sort of fiction and culture influencing each other in this arena? Because they're so close together. I mean, I could see somebody reading your book and going, huh, maybe I should try to, maybe I should try to start that. I don't know. Um, You know, I, I, I think like, we are a little bit through the looking glass um, in a lot of ways, in a lot of things in our culture right now. And so, you know, if art imitating life, imitating art, imitating life or whatever happened, like, <laughs> you know, I, 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 it wouldn't shock me, I guess. No, I think that's particularly true in California and in LA because you're like Hollywood imitating life, imitating Hollywood, okay. you know all the time and everybody wants to look like celebrities and there's reality shows that are not really real. They're really kind of directed. And, you know, it's this whole fabricated reality that seems to be present in the book as well. It's like, you're supposed to be happy, but you're supposed to be happy in a certain way. And you're supposed to want to go do pole dancing with your coworkers. And I loved Sabrina's character for that reason, because I too have been suspicious of like having to do every social thing Mm-hmm. with coworkers and that, that there seems to be like a 20 something age set that is totally into that. And that that's a positive yeah. thing. And it's almost like, um, it reminds me of like Susan Cain's book when quiet came out and everyone's like, yes, I relate to that. It's okay that I want to go home and read a book. And it's almost like being in your thirties is the same as being an introvert now versus the twenties who like want to go out and all live together and have their like adult dorms that you were talking about. Yeah, I mean the the cult of the introvert is a whole is a is a whole podcast like <laughs> that's worth its own podcast. Probably, yes. <laughs> How much of that is really happening in tech? Do you see it really skewing down? I mean, we, you know, you and I live in LA, so we know I always joke with people I'm like, "Well, I'm going to have to start lying about my age soon or whatever because that's what you do in Los Angeles because, you know, they're all suspicious if you're over 40, but it's um it almost feels like it's the same at 30 in tech that yeah. there's this odd line that happens. And what do you think is going to be the implication of that cultural divide? I don't know. I'm asking you all these hard questions because I'm like, you're in there. You must know. But yeah. <laughs> Well, I, you know, I think I don't have the answer, but I, I think something that is going to be really interesting is like watching these people who are in their 20s and working for tech companies grow up and how they are going to are they are they going to keep doing what they're doing into their 30s because this is what they've been doing or are they going to change and and then the companies are going to change with them or are you is everyone going to just age out of startups or you know like I don't know I mean it's interesting like at BuzzFeed it's definitely still I would say especially in LA it's like dominated by people in their 20s but you know you are starting to get people who are like having babies and you know whereas when I started there were like no parents there was maybe like one or two um and just seeing how that has changed and 
how the company has adapted has been really interesting. So, but you know, by the same token, we're a lot bigger now. Like when right. I started 65 people and I don't, I don't know if those people in their thirties who like have kids are going to be able to go work at a startup because the life of the lifestyle that working at a small startup that's just getting off the ground at that, that demands. Yeah. I think that is a really interesting question. Like, will they age out of that lifestyle? Because everybody who was ever in their twenties, which everyone who's older than 20 has been, had that period of like, can we make life fun? And like, was kind of resistant to the whole adulting. I mean, now it's like a verb to be an adult. You're adulting, you know, it's, everybody's been through that phase of like, couldn't this be a little more fun than my parents said it was going to turn out to be? And they figured out a way, you know, all the startup cultures figured out a way to fund that difference. Mm -hmm. I I used to want to stay out until three in the morning, which sounds horrible to me now, but you know, it's, so it's like at a certain point, I think they will change and and maybe we'll see a lot more like baby clothes swapping apps and and those kinds of things coming up. Totally. I think you're right. So what is, what's next for you? Do you think you'll write another novel? Did this one like sate your novel or are you now like I'm on fire to write more? <laughs> um, I would like to write another novel. Um, I'm still kind of figuring out what it might be. Like whether, is it a sequel to startup? Does it take place in the same universe as startup that maybe has a slightly different cast of characters? Is it something totally different? Um, I'm still kind of workshopping ideas with myself. <laughs> Well, I think you've earned yourself some time. Thank you. Thank it's you. fair to, it's fair to, <laughs> I know people are always like, oh, I don't want to talk about the next book yet. Didn't I just make one? But I think there is a feeling at a certain point of like, yes, I'd like to do this again. This was good. You know, I'm a little tired yeah. right now, but I think I might do it again. Or like, no, that was good. I tried it and I'm good. I think I definitely want to at least try to do it again. Yeah. It would be fun to see it in a different location too. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like the New York thing, I mean, I've lived in New York before and not in that context, but it's like, it's so location specific in a way. There's all of this. New York, I feel like is one of those cities that's always a character, whether or not it's a character. Totally, totally. And so I'm like, you know, I'm like, well, if I may make requests, it would be kind of cool to see the Silicon Valley side of this story or... Right, right the parallel or the, you know, the LA version, it would be kind of interesting to see how those scenarios play out in other locations. Yeah. That's definitely something I've thought about. Yeah. So, (laughs) yeah. I like it. So you're now on tour for this one and out and about with it. Yeah. Thank you so much. This has been really awesome to talk about. And I I know everybody's going to want to read this book this summer. So definitely go get it. You're going to read it fast. I will tell you right now. I just chewed right through it. Yay. Um, thanks so much for having me. It was super fun to talk to you. Yeah, thanks for coming out. Well, you'll have to write another book so you can come back. Sounds good. Thank you for listening to The Secret Library Podcast. The show is produced by me, Caroline Donahue, and Frederick Barry McWilliams Jr., my tireless audio engineer. To get show notes for this episode and all other episodes, please visit secretlibrarypodcast.com. To get updates, literary love, and notification when new episodes are posted, sign up there for Footnotes, my newsletter. And to learn about life coaching with me to work on building your writing life, visit carolinedonahue.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Gold stars to everybody who leaves a rating and review on iTunes. We're so grateful. Until next time, happy reading.
So, how do we get AI right? Well, we need the right volume of data and massive compute power. But with HPE GreenLake, we get access to supercomputing to power AI at the scale we need. All right. Search HPE GreenLake. Mm-hmm. 